Welcome to the award-winning personal computer show. Today is Wednesday, October the 5th, 2022. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The Wrath of Hurricane Eon was a Category 4 that made landfall on the 28th of September, causing widespread damage and power outages. Hurricane Eon upended the lives of millions along the southeastern United States. Many still remain without power, and most of the deaths in Hurricane Eon were from drowning. Over 100 have now died from drowning and other storm-related causes. Our prayers are with the victims with this monster storm. Comcast and Charter Communications are being good corporate citizens. Comcast opens free Xfinity Wi-Fi hotspot network to help residents and emergency personnel stay connected after Hurricane Ian. Comcast public Xfinity Wi-Fi hotspots are now available for anyone to use, including non-Xfinity customers, for free. When a hotspot is within range, Select the Xfinity Wi-Fi network on a device's list of available networks and launch a browser. Sign-in options will appear for both Xfinity customers and non-customers. Xfinity Internet customers can sign in with their account credentials and they will be automatically connected to Xfinity Wi-Fi hotspots in their range in the future. Alternatively, they can download the Xfinity Wi-Fi hotspots app and sign in with their account credentials. Non-Xfinity Internet subscribers need to look for the Get Connected section and agree to the terms and conditions to be connected. Note that if a user does not see the words Accept and Connect button, the hotspot they are trying to connect to is in an Xfinity customer's home and is not open to the public. Non-customers will be able to renew their complimentary sessions every two hours. And last Wednesday... Charter Communications opened free Spectrum out-of-home Wi-Fi access points. Charter Communications has opened nearly 175,000 free Spectrum out-of-home Wi-Fi access points across Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. This free access is in support of response to Hurricane Ian. These access points can be found in public parks, marinas, city streets, and other public areas. Charter is the parent company of Spectrum. Supreme Court puts Section 230 protections on its docket. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and other social media sites all depend on being shielded from responsibility for user content via Section 230, but that could soon change. On Monday, the Supreme Court announced nine cases it intends to hear in its upcoming term, including Renato Gonzalez v. Google. The case directly questions the protection afforded by Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which limits the legal liability of online web hosts for the content posted by their users. That law has essentially defined what users currently understand about the Internet and has served as the main shield against lawsuits for social media companies against lawmakers and citizens. Lawyers for Google have said changes in the provisions of Section 230 could threaten the basic organizational decisions of the modern Internet. The case goes back to 2015, when Nohemi Gonzalez, a U.S. citizen living in Paris, was shot and killed alongside 130 other people during a terror attack carried out by members of the Islamic State. The family of Gonzalez sued Google and said the company promoted 
ISIS-centric content, spreading the militants' group's message and helping them radicalize and recruit new members. The Supreme Court has also agreed to hear a similar case tied to an appeal from Twitter. Google and the meta-owned Facebook, where each faces claims they failed to remove Islamic State-related materials from their platforms. At the heart of Gonzalez is the question of whether 230 still shields tech companies when they use algorithms to recommend content specifically third-party contents to a user's feed. Social media apps' content recommendations are a cornerstone of how the largest tech companies operate, but the case could pin responsibility for recommended user content on those companies, completely upend the current ways most companies do business. The Supreme Court of the United States, the nation's top courts, often hear cases when there's disagreement in lower courts. As noted in the original petition, five appeals court judges have said that 230 creates immunity for cases involving recommended content, while three have argued to varying degrees that it doesn't. The Fifth and Eleventh Circuit Courts have disagreed so heavily. The Supreme Court will decide next on Section 230. It will have a major impact on any future decision regarding social media companies' liabilities for the posts that appear on their web pages and whether deleting any of those posts would be considered censorship. The FCC takes long-delayed step against spam text surge. The Federal Communications Commission approved a long-delayed proposal to crack down on spam texts. The number of spam text messages, which can include links or other tricks designed to steal money or personal information, has exploded, with the volume now exceeding that of robocalls. The FCC proposal which passed on a 4 nothing vote, seeks comment on requiring cell phone companies to block texts from numbers known to be illegal or fraudulent. It had been awaiting a vote at the FCC for nearly a year. The FCC will review feedback on the proposal before writing final rules, a process that can take months. The measure also seeks comment on whether carriers should use third-party analytics providers to inform blocking efforts and whether the agency should push the wireless industry to authenticate text messages like it does for phone calls to deter robocalls. The American people are fed up with scam texts and we need to use every tool we have to do something about it, said Chairwoman Jessica Rosenwasser. The FCC's Consumer Advisory Committee began reviewing the issue in April and issued a study at the end of last month. The committee recommended the commission urge widespread adoption of wireless trade group CTIA's best practices for messages, which includes obtaining consumer consent and honoring consumer opt-out requests. The FCC's proposal incorporates some findings from the committee which included you need rules in place to shut the stuff down rapidly. That's the importance of these regulations, so there are rules on the road that companies have to comply with. By the numbers, more than 10 billion spam texts were sent in the month of August alone. Nearly 39 spam texts for every person in the United States, according to data from RoboKiller, an app that blocks spam calls and texts. RoboKiller reported just over 7 billion robocalls that month. The FCC saw a nearly 146% increase in the number of complaints about unwanted text messages in 2020. Many of the regulations related to spam text and calls stem from a 1991 law, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, that does not account for the technology used today. Congress is unlikely to pass updated legislation against unwanted texts because politicians benefit from them. Politicians themselves want to be able to send these texts without fear of being sued. Congress passed the Trace Act in 2019 that, in part, 
ordered the FCC to consider rules to, to protect consumers from receiving unwanted texts from unauthenticated phone numbers. But the law doesn't give the FCC any new tools to use to stop unwanted texts. What's next? The Commission will now seek comment on the proposal before deciding on final regulations. The FCC notice of proposed rulemaking is as stated. We propose to require mobile wireless providers to block illegal text messages, building on our ongoing work to stop illegal and unwanted robocalls. Specifically, we propose to require mobile wireless providers to block texts at the network level that purport to be from invalid, unallocated, or unused numbers and numbers on a do-not-originate list. These texts are highly likely to be illegal. Basically, after the passage of the TRACE Act three years ago to consider rules to protect consumers, the FCC proposal is to require mobile wireless providers to block illegal text messages. That's it. Since politicians themselves benefit from the use of text messages, this review process will continue to stretch out. To shorten the process, why don't we just simply have a national referendum that reads as follows. The FCC requires mobile wireless providers to block illegal text messages. That's it. We don't need a continuing study to review the proposal for mobile wireless providers to block illegal text. Boy, I guess the government has a more complex way of doing studies. Users are experiencing corrupted photos on Google Photos, but Google says the original files are safe. Google Photo users are reporting that photos stored in Google Photos are appearing corrupted, and the Google Photos corrupting old photos would be a nightmare who have opted to store their photos with Google. It's happening to some people right now. The good news, says Google, is that according to them, the issue isn't affecting the original files. Google's statement states the following, We're aware of the issue and are rolling out a fix. The original photos are not impacted. However, if there is a fix in the works and original files aren't damaged, it's easy to understand why Google Photo users affected by the issue were upset. It's scary to be scrolling through your precious photos and memories and see them appear damaged. What's especially strange is that some photos show what looks like water damage to physical prints. Images showed blurry and distorted areas, lines, and cracks. The issue has popped up across numerous platforms, including Google Phones on desktop, Android, and iOS. It's widespread, with many reports appearing on Google Support and Reddit. Per affected users, the corrupted images remain corrupted even when downloading the original file. So it's not just a display issue when looking at the files in the cloud. As of Sunday, some users had noticed an improvement in their photo collections, while others still had the issue. And Google's statement acknowledging the issue and promising a solution was released, well, just yesterday. So hopefully more users have had their photo libraries returned to normal. To ensure your photos are safely preserved, have a copy of it saved on local storage media. Mark Zuckerberg says Meta will freeze hiring and cut costs. The company formerly known as Facebook is planning to trim down, and Bloomberg reports that Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced plans to freeze hiring and restructure some groups within the company in an internal all-hands call. According to Bloomberg, Meta plans to shrink budgets widely within the company including to teams that it was recently investing in. Meta has thrown a lot of weight behind visual reality and creating its own metaverse in recent months and is also scrambling to build out short-form video products like Reels that can compete with TikTok. Meta is far from the only tech company downsizing at the moment, 
but a hiring freeze still signals relatively dire times for the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. While many companies in tech are battening down the hatches at the moment, given a worsening global economic outlook, Meta is also grappling with fresh threats to its advertising business, most notably from iOS privacy changes implemented by Apple last year. Zuckerberg signaled that the company was in for leaner times this past July, noting in an internal meeting that his company was approaching one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history and with slow hiring to prepare. Meta already selectively paused hiring within certain organizations in the company, but the universal hiring freeze marks a new era. I think some of you might decide that this place is in for you, says Mark Zuckerberg, and that self-selection is okay with me, he said, in an internal call this summer. Realistically, there are probably a bunch of people at the company who shouldn't be here. Job hunting? Beware of ghost jobs. What is a ghost job? Before the coronavirus, it was employees and job candidates that were ghosting employers. They would talk to the employer about a job, and the prospective candidate would set up an interview. But then the candidate would never show up for the appointment. Worse than that, would-be job applicants that were offered the job and accepted it, then failed to show up for the first day of work. Well, now something different is happening. Career counselors and job hunters alike are reporting that there are many ghost jobs out there. By this, an employer has listed a job they no longer are hiring for. A job posting of over 60 days but still on the internet may mean that the job is currently not being filled by the company. The longer a job remains posted, the higher the probability of that job being a ghost job. What can you do about this if you're looking for a job? How would you know what are real jobs and which are ones company has stopped hiring for? Because of the coronavirus, many jobs might still be on job search sites that companies have paused and are currently not actively hiring for. These organizations are probably at fault for not taking down the old listings. They might not have all their staff working or possibly may hire for the job sometime in the future. Soon, a month from now, three months from now maybe, I don't think even the employers know right now so much is dependent on the current reopening. How to avoid applying for ghost jobs? If it was posted, let's say, within the past 12 hours, that means it's a real job. Avoid positions that are more than a couple weeks old. Look for when the job was posted. Look at the opportunities that are most recent time-wise. These are the jobs that concentrate on applying for first. Next, look at the positions that are two to three weeks old. These are unlikely to be ghost jobs. These have been put up after the pandemic hit, so they are probably a real job that the employer is still hiring for. After that, when you get to a position and it is one month old, go to the employer's website to verify to see if it's still there. If there's something that you really want and it's longer than one month old, go to the employer's website to see if it's still listed. The easiest way to find a job listing on an employer's website is to do a Google search and type in the employer name and the word careers after it. Be careful to go to the actual employer's website and not to an Indeed or LinkedIn listed job. Once on the employer's site, you can search for the job title and see if it is still available. Use LinkedIn to get details on ghost jobs. Go to LinkedIn Connections. Look to see if you know anybody that works at the company you're interested in. Do a search to see if the company is undergoing a hiring freeze at this time. There are always specific jobs that companies are actively looking for. A good example is for programmers, as they are hard to find, and many companies will continue to hire them even if they have a hiring freeze going on. However, for most other people, if there is a freeze in place, go look elsewhere. Do not make the mistake of thinking only low-level positions are available. Positions are available at every level. That means if you're looking for a management or professional position, or if you are an executive, there are job opportunities available out there right now. You must be strategic in your search and stay away from the time-wasting ghost jobs. However, to complicate job hunting, 
someone has recently, and we don't know who, or a group of people might have been involved, created a large number of fake LinkedIn profiles for Chief Information Security Officer roles at some of the world's largest corporations. It's not clear who's behind this network of fake Chief Information Security Officer listing or what their intentions may be, but the fabricated LinkedIn identities are confusing search engines' results for those positions at major companies. A follow-up. There is a website called JobHunt, one word, .org, has put together a list of current employers that are actively hiring. Each week, new employers are appearing on the list. Google Stadia gaming service shutting down. Google had big plans for its cloud gaming service, but it never tipped the scales. Soon, Google will be shutting it down. Google Stadia cloud gaming service will soon be no more as the company announced that it is shutting down the service early next year. Google touted ambitious plans when Stadia launched, but it never posed any real threat to established players like Sony and Microsoft. Google's general lack of commitment to anything but its biggest cash cow, which is digital advertising. Stadia never really had a chance to succeed. When Google first introduced Stadia at the Google Developers Conference back in 2019, it discussed sky-high aspirations that look disruptive. You'd be able to stream games to all of your devices. You could jump into a game from a YouTube clip. When Stadia finally launched that November, there were still a lot of missing features. But you could play a handful of video games with just an internet connection. Things then slowly fell apart from there. There just weren't many people playing Stadia games. Google offered some promotions to try to get Stadia into more people's hands, but they weren't enough. In February of 2021, the company announced what was clearly the beginning of the end. It shut down its in-house development studios and said it would instead offer Stadia primarily as a platform for other partners to build upon. Nearly two years to date after that news, Stadia would be shut down for good. It's clear Stadia never matter all that much to Google, either. Most big-budget video games take years to develop, but Google shuttered its own studios a little over a year after Stadia officially launched. If Google wasn't willing to invest in its own platform, why should other developers? Developers that did support Stadia were as surprised as everyone else about the news. Even Stadia employees apparently had little notice. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about IT and the workplace, or as we have for the last couple of weeks, a common item that is prevalent in IT, but also across the entire workplace. And there's some important things that come along with this. Uh, and I, I want to talk about quiet quitting uh, for this week and next week, because there are things that that can be done. There are things that can get us on track, and we need to we need to think about these both from a perspective of what do we want from the employer perspective, what do we want out of our workers, but also what do workers want out of our employers. And some of the things I'm going to say this week are, are, are to hopefully spur ideas in your mind, the phrases that might help drive the conversation forward. This quiet quitting concept where we talk about, uh, you know, uh, the work to rule or malicious compliance. I mean, maybe it isn't so much malicious compliance, it's dialing it back and, and maintaining a work-life balance that we've had from due to the pandemic, due to just some of the rewards we've seen in our lives over the course of the last two years. And let's let's find the the new balance point for moving forward. I mean this is this is what's going on. We're trying to figure out how has work changed, how will work change. So one of the things we need to think about, 
is the drivers for quiet quitting. So, yes, I have already talked about that work-life balance. All right, you know, it, we, we we can we can talk about this for hours on end. All of the different things that we're realizing come from working from home. There's no more. Okay, I don't have to get an expensive suit or maintain a bunch of expensive suits, which includes dry cleaning. I don't have to go out to lunch with with everybody at twenty dollars, roughly maybe fifteen dollars per person. I can make a two dollar lunch at home. With family, there's there's so much there with work-life balance. I mean, we can go on for a while on this one. And then there's the idea of fair compensation and incentives. People have been, there are, you know, I'm, I'm talking to different people where, okay, in, during the pandemic, no raises came. But inflation has really, over the course of three years, it's nearly 20%. Uh, maybe it's three and a half years. But it, the uh, from 2019 through the pandemic to now, it's roughly 20% inflation. And some companies have not, they they said, we're waiting until the end of the pandemic. We're waiting to see if we survive. And then there's other things. There's learning, both on the job, but uh, learning options that lead towards career advancement. Maybe not the classes your employer wants you to take, but just overall, education, but even the idea of career advancement. And then there's there's this lack of recognition by your employer or maybe a lack of visibility, not necessarily your, your boss going, hey, why aren't you getting anything done? But more a matter of, hey, I, I didn't know that you fixed this. I didn't know that you drove this. I didn't know that you resolved this. There's a lot of different things. But let's 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 go even further into the the harder items. The toxic work culture. Now this can be management, this can be peers, this can be just a perception of a difference in that work life balance. Well, Johnny gets to work from home all the time. Why do I have to come into the office all the time? Now, there's also the idea of just simply bad bosses. Not necessarily toxic bosses, like I just talked about toxic work culture, but not good bosses either. And then there's, you know, I mean, this that can come with destructive criticism that can come with all kinds of different problems there. But there's also the idea of excessive working hours or these these hustle cultures, the culture which drives people far, far, far beyond what we've grown accustomed to with the work life balance in everything I've said. These are things that are in the power for the employer to fix. It doesn't mean they have to fix everything, but they're in the power for the employer to fix. I know earlier I said that, you know, this this quiet quitting was more of an employee thing, or at least I indicated that, but let's explore this again. Work-life balance. The employer can resolve that. Compensation and incentives. Yes, that's an employer situation. Maybe it's to some extent there's an employee expectations but you have to meet your employee with their expectations, especially if they can solve those expectations elsewhere. There's learning and career advancement opportunities. Where does that come from? Yeah, employer. Lack of recognition, lack of visibility, toxic work cultures, bad bosses, destructive criticism, excessive work hours, not telling people, hey, it's the end of the day, just chill. All of these are within the power of the employer to resolve. People have realized that slaving away, going for for days where you're 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 involved with eight hours, well nine hours after lunch, plus uh, ten hours after commute or eleven hours of commute. How much time are you spending all in the quest for? A couple more pennies. Yeah, we've got to we've got to solve some of these things. Next week, I'm going to provide some insight for both sides as we close this out. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin.
rebranding of USB standards. There are USB cables, and there are USB cables. There are USB cables with the same labeling name, but they differ in specs. The group that oversees USB wants to make it easier for you to understand what various cables and ports can actually do. It's trying to ditch branding like SuperSpeed and USB 4 in an attempt to simplify matters, but manufacturers may not necessarily adopt the changes. The steps are part of a broader drive by the USB Implementers Forum to rebrand USB standards. The group brought in new logos for cables, ports, and packaging last year. The updated branding is about helping people understand what the standards are capable of in terms of data transfer speeds and performances, as well as charging speeds. SuperSpeed, also known as USB 3, has been around over a decade. You may have seen it on USB cable boxes. Going forward, the USB Implementers Forum wants cable makers to use USB 10 gigabits per second instead of SuperSpeed, USB 10 gigabits per second, and USB 20 gigabits per second, instead of USB 4 20 gigabits per second. Meanwhile, USB-C cables certified by the USB Implementers Forum will need to list both data transfer speeds and charging wattage. The changes recently came into effect, and the updated branding could start appearing on labels and packaging by the end of the year. The branding guidelines apply to products with any type of USB port except for USB 1.0, which you won't see much these days anyway, and USB 2.0, also known as USB High Speed. The USB Implementers Forum reckons that in the latter case, using USB 480 megabits per second may create confusion for those who might see that on packaging and believe it to be faster than USB 5 gigabits per second simply because of the larger number. The rebranding requirements only apply to devices and cables certified by the USB Implementers Forum. But because USB is an open standard, unlike, say, Thunderbolt 4, there's nothing really to stop manufacturers from using SuperSpeed and USB 4 for branding if they really want to. As such, it remains to be seen how much these measures will actually clear things up for people who just need a cable for their device, knowing which is already complicated enough. Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4 connectors and ports look exactly the same as USB-C. For instance, the updated guidelines won't do much to help you understand if a cable supports DisplayPort or a certain fast-charging standard either. On the surface, at least, these seem like positive moves to reduce confusion and get rid of unnecessary verbiage. It may not matter much anyway, given the increasingly widespread adoption of USB-C as a more universal standard, which is the whole point of USB in the first place. LED streetlights are increasing blue light pollution. Over the last decade, light bulbs are using LED technology typically seen in consumer electronics. It is a widely used lighting option. They're energy efficient, capable of producing a large amount of light at a low wattage, making them far less of a drain on energy consumption. Over the long term, LED lighting is far more affordable than conventional light bulbs, both in the cost of lighting equipment itself and the low amount of electricity it consumes. This is because LED light bulbs are designed and built to last, while an incandescent light typically only lasts for about a thousand hours. LED lighting is designed to last for between 25,000 to 50,000 hours of continuous use. Since LED light bulbs last a long time, they really need to be replaced early compared to incandescent or fluorescent light bulbs. So what is it that is not to like about LED lighting? The United Nations is citing LED streetlights are increasing blue light pollution. A Harvard study recommended everyone reduce the exposure to blue light as much as possible, citing the following reasons. Blue light disrupts 
circadian rhythm, that is the sleep-wake cycle. Blue light affects melatonin production, which is in hormone important for cellular health. Blue light is linked to increased risk of diseases in diabetes, cancer, and others. Blue light creates eye strain. Blue light is linked to increased risk of macular degeneration, which is an eye disease. The shift to LED street lighting is producing more blue light pollution. This is the conclusion of researchers who have analyzed digital photographs of Earth taken by astronauts on board the International Space Station. The scientist says that the shift to blue light is having negative consequences for human health, animal behavior, and astronomy. LEDs have been around for 60 years, but older devices operated towards the red end of the visual spectrum. In the 1990s, bright blue LEDs became available. The ability to create bright blue LEDs quickly led to the development of white LEDs, which are becoming ubiquitous in many lighting applications. LED streetlights have begun to replace sodium lamps, which produces yellow light. However, researchers point out this rollout has a darker side. Previous studies have shown that the amount of light pollution is increasing with the introduction of LEDs. Furthermore, this LED light is much bluer than sodium light and previous research shows that nighttime exposure to blue light can have negative effects on people's circadian rhythm and sleep. There is evidence that blue light can change the behavior of some insects and also exasperates the problem of light pollution on the night sky, making stars more difficult to see for both the public and astronomers. Typically, satellite data on nighttime lighting considers all wavelengths of visible light together and does not differentiate between red, green, and blue. Scientists compared camera images taken from the International Space Station in 2012 and 2013 with images taken between 2014 and 2020, when the LED revolution began to take hold. They found a clear increase in blue light coming from the continent. As a result of the study, nighttime light pollution have underestimated the potential harmful effects of LEDs simply because up until now, all monitoring of light pollution with satellites have not been color-specific. A spokesperson for the International Dark Sky Association says, over the past 25 years, in a rush to transition to energy-efficient LED nighttime lights, unfortunately, the quality of nighttime environment has suffered, and we continue to waste massive amounts of energy through wasted nighttime lights. Artificial nighttime light is considered a pollutant by the United Nations. They say the best way of limiting it is by controlling its use. There are simple ways to do this in the herbal planning phase, and so we may have simple ways to measure it. What they say is that they recommend that anyone considering an outdoor lighting project follow the joint IDA-IES-5 principles for responsible outdoor lighting. A holistic approach to outdoor lighting will ultimately result in improved visibility, a healthy and disrupted nocturnal habitat, and dark skies. The research is described in Science Advances. But I do have a major question. Has anyone noticed that on a clear day the sky is blue? More companies adopting the Microsoft Surface form factor. If you've been following the laptop space over the past two or so years, you've probably noticed that the detachable laptop is on the rise. Several high-profile models that were previously traditional two-in-ones, that is an old-school-looking laptop that can also bend backwards, have slowly but surely been converted to detachable keyboard form factors. Initially announced as Surface for Windows 8 Pro on June 18, 2012, at a Los Angeles event, Microsoft later renamed the device to Surface Pro and launched it on February 2013. As more and more companies add the form factor to their premium lines, it seems like the idea that Microsoft had was right all along. Some recent examples include Dell's XPS 13 2-in-1. Once one of the best traditional convertibles you could buy, 
has become a folio type detachable this year, but the market for two-in-one convertibles is a small one. Lenovo has pulled back on the convertible two-in-one option in some ThinkPad lines in recent years. The new Z series, for example, doesn't have a convertible option. But there are detachable ThinkPads now, and the keyboards still have the track point. Asus ExpertBook line just received its first ARM detachable, the ExpertBook B3 detachable. The Dell Latitude line, known for having some of the best business convertibles out there, now has a few detachable as well. The Dell XPS 13 2-in-1 on a stone table in laptop mode with a stylus fixed at the top. The screen displays a Windows desktop background. There are traits inherent to the laptop form factor, especially with the direction it's going these days, that runs contrary to what you want from a good tablet. One example, weight. In general, laptops that are over 3 pounds or so are just too heavy to comfortably hold and carry as a tablet. There's also the fact that holding a convertible as a tablet also means holding the keyboard, which feels a little bit weird, or pressing the keyboard into the ground. Bezos are becoming more of an issue as well. Premium laptops have been moving towards higher screen-to-body ratios, and smaller bezels have long been a prominent element in what many reviewers are willing to credit as modern look. But good tablets need to retain some degree of bezel because people need something to hold. A tablet screen is suboptimal. For a long time, the 2-in-1 convertible was a compromise. It was hard to fit laptop-grade internals in a tablet, and full-size keyboard deck gave them a place to live. But as processors get more power-efficient and more companies embrace hybrid architecture, that's becoming less and less true. And it's allowing companies to zero in on the reason that customers have liked convertible laptops all along. It's not just a touchable screen, and it's not the tent mode. It's portability and the ability to detach the keyboard. Intel dropped Celeron and Pentanim names from low-end laptop CPUs. Intel has used the Celeron and Pentium brands for CPUs since the 1990s, but they're finally fading away, if not quite in the way you expect. The company's replacing both brand names for below-end laptop chips in favor of the simpler, if not exactly creative, Intel processor badge starting in 2023. The move will help simplify the lineup. The Core, Evo, and VPro labels will stick around. Intel didn't say how it will handle branding for desktop processors, which still includes Celeron and Pentium models released this year. Both the Celeron and Pentium names have been synonymous with low-end processors for years, and the practical difference for users have been modest at best. This clarifies what you're getting if you don't see core It's a basic model. Consumers shopping for entry-level laptops aren't hunting for specific branding like their more enthusiast counterparts. Here, pricing and base functionality are more important. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, I want to I want to kind of revisit something. You've been involved with the manufacturing industry for uh, for a few years now, doing all kinds half, of different half a things. century. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, onshore, offshore. You know, we've got this idea in our mind that, you know, we, we can just buy everything from China. And it's just going to be cheaper. And I know some of the companies oh, are bringing production back on shore. Uh, what are what are your experiences, your observations from all of this? Oh, here we go. Uh, there's a name for those companies who are bringing it back from China. Intelligent. <laughs> okay. I, I think I know bu- where we're going with this one. <laughs> I, I'm going to bust the China is cheaper myth. Uh, uh, folks, if, if you're at companies that build products that are sold in this country, bring it home. Make it here. Now, how many ways does building products in China cost more than building here? Here's a list. Tariffs, mm-hmm. 26%. Yeah. 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 Shipping yeah. costs, mm-hmm. delivery delays. Now, those are obvious. 
But when the U.S. product team, the guys at your headquarters who are trying to coordinate and manage everything, they want to see what the overseas production team is doing. And, well, first off, they're never going to be hands-on, eyes-on. It takes too long to get there, and they're quarantined for weeks at a time. Yeah, yeah. Second, check out the time zones. Somebody's (laughs) up very early, and somebody's up very late, and all that fatigue slows things down. But but, but that ain't all. There are no same-day changes. The earliest possible is the next day, and more likely two to three days later. A U.S. Uh, yeah, are, are they? And that 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 would be a rush change. Usually, yeah. I, I mean, I would think changes in stuff like that because they're also very um, ingrained in what they're doing. They think they and egotistical. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. Those were the words I was looking for. Yes. Uh, you tell them what you know. You see what they want to do, and you think, "Oh no, you don't." And you tell them, "No, do this, do that, do that." Mm-hmm. And they're going to tell their people, do this, do that, do that. It's going to get to the work queue. It's going to get done. It's going to come back. They're going to come back, come back. Two, three days later, you get to see they just changed it to the color purple. They haven't done anything you've asked for. Right. Yeah. Now, that costs you money. Time is money, certainly on the bill. Mm-hmm. With a U.S. manufacturer, that kind of change can be same day and is generally only a few hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just... They just want to make you happy and get it done. Also, those overseas services, those those contract manufacturers and designers, they may have their own agenda. And if you're not smart enough to anticipate all the ways in which they deviate from your desires, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you don't ask those specific questions, they're unlikely to volunteer results. Do they want to buy from their source and get a kickback? Of course they do. Mm-hmm. Once a product's mm-hmm. built... Once the product is built, okay, it's been built where? Down the block from you or on the other side of the planet? Once a product's built, there are huge cash and calendar costs to getting it delivered stateside. Getting it to the U.S. costs a lot more than you would have thought. And then you still have to transport it across the U.S., which would have been the only cost you faced if you build it here in the first place. So from what I'm seeing, The idea of building anything overseas for less is a myth and a lie that, sadly, only a few U.S. brands have been successful at discovering. You know, and it's it's very interesting. Okay, so so let me dive in here because uh, one of my uh, you know I've got a couple of different hobbies. One of my uh, hobbies uh, is is collecting watches, and some of the watches I have. I uh, I I picked up a couple of watches from from the aforementioned China, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and by the way, for some of our younger listeners, he's speaking about timepieces that you wear on your wrist that are not embedded in a smartphone. Yeah, oh yes, <laughs> all all of mine. Uh, I have. Let's see, I've got one smartwatch in amongst probably about uh, fifteen watches now. I, uh, I, I went from two smartwatches to one citizen. Very nice, very nice. Uh, citizen is uh, I, I have a I have one citizen. It's a solar. The rest of my watches, including I've got one on the way, which is it's made by Citizen. It's they're all of them are automatics. They're all mechanical, fully mechanical. I've I've just fallen in love with the idea of uh, of the mechanical watches, but. Every time I I feel tempted to buy another one of the ones from China, I've got I've got two, and I regretted both of them. Uh, it, yeah, I look at those, and I I, I don't even I, I don't even understand the the world they live in. <laughs> it's it's like that. And by the way, speaking of watches from that part of the world, yeah, Seiko. Yes. Started as a watch manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Became yeah. Seiko Epson. And we just talked about that. I, I had an operation on my feet. I have to soak in Epsom salts. I got it wrong. I used Epsom salts and my toes came out magenta, <laughs> yellow, and, and uh, cyan. <laughs> you found a way to, uh, to put that joke in. <laughs> that was good. That was. A- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what a segue. You open uh, it. No, don't build it in China. China, yeah, I yeah. love you. You're a great country. 
but send us our own stuff to build. We need to regain the skill yes. set and the smarts. Yes. Yeah, very true. Uh, I am fully on board with that. Uh, as for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and the presentation will be the James Webb Telescope. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, October the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting ID is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West, Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, nyacc.org for meeting ID. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 15th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation, How to Make the Best of Video Meetings. Thursday, October the 27th, meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.